0: And I tell you, number one, I hope you'll go by our guest center. We have a gift bag for you. We want to give it to you, and we want to meet you. We do want to know a little bit about you. We want to know your name, what brought you here, and we'd love just to get to know you in that brief way. But also, if you're new, we have a class designed for you, and I can sum up the class in two words, uh, curiosity and connection. So if you're curious, if this is the right place for you and your family, then uh, that class would answer those questions. It would be a great place. Or if you want to get connected to our church family, that class really tries to do that. So it's, it's right after this service. It's an hour long. We have snacks and we have child care. We try to make it as easy as we can for you. And uh, that actually is two weeks from today. You can sign up on our website. All the details, everything's there. And I hope that you will, if you're new, would love to host you for that and get to know you in a greater way and spend some time with you there. I hope that you didn't miss, as a church family, a couple things that we just mentioned on the announcement video. Uh, number one is the new... Bible reading plan that actually starts today if you want to jump in on that I know that probably 150 or so of you are in Either the dwell app with us or you are in the U version app with us So if you are part of that group, it's pretty easy. It's just another plan under our church's name there If you're not and you're like, I don't know what are you talking about? The dwell is audio bible U version is you just read it, uh, but both are digital And if you'd like to jump in with us, then please do Uh, you can find actually details uh, on our website i'm pretty sure or if you just want to stop by the welcome desk we'll show you exactly what to do on your phone and then tonight actually is our workshop that is from 4 30 to 6 30 on the authority and reliability of scripture so that actually will be some teaching but then there'll also be a time for us to interact and some question and answer so maybe uh you want to come or maybe you have a friend who's a skeptic and you want to invite them to come and they can ask some questions but we would love to host you once again there's child care for that as well with a bunch of different kids classes and those sorts of things but the point being, both of those, whether it be the Bible reading, which we actually, we're not doing a year-long Bible reading plan because we want to reset that every two to three months. You can, if you're not careful, think, oh, there was this plan that started two months ago. I'm behind. Uh, should I jump in? I'm so far behind. We actually want to give you, like, a clean start. So if you're, if you're wanting to jump back in, hey, we're starting fresh again. It's, it's 60 days together. But that and tonight are both centered around the idea biblically that God's people should be gospel-centered students that we actually should take doctrine seriously that we should study the Bible that we should know the Bible that we should read the Bible in our own time it shouldn't just be Sunday then that's it that's all the Bible intake I have for my week so we're trying to help you establish rhythms of Bible intake and understanding more and growing more which actually I think is a very fitting thing for a church to do so uh, either of those interest you would love to see you I do want to share with you before we jump into Esther 3 a note that we got this week, and we get a, a lot of notes, honestly, but this one was definitely worth sharing. So we mentioned to you on Easter that we had uh, participated and put together some uh, Easter baskets for the kids that are in foster care in Butler County. We were able to cover all of the foster children and teens in Butler County, and then that spilled over into several other counties that we weren't able to get all the kids in those counties, but but many of them. So Hundreds of baskets we did. We put Bibles in all of those, and not just even the cheap, you know, dollar store ones. Although that's it's still the Bible; it'll work. Uh, But we actually tried to try to take care of them and put them in there. And we got this note this week from Amira. Amira is a teenager in a girls' home right here in our backyard. And I just wanted to read you this note. It was so encouraging to me, and, and hopefully it encourages you as well. It said, "Hi, my name's Amira. Thank you for the Easter baskets." I am so happy. Thank you for the Bible. I was raised Christian, but I've started to fall out of it. I had thought I was too far gone for God to fix me, and these gifts have given me hope that God still cares. Thank you so much. God loves you, and you brought smiles to all of our faces, Amira. And I just thought, that is worth sharing. And the point being, uh, when you're generous uh, through your local church, even on your own, but when you're generous and you have a heart to bless people, or we as a church have a heart to bless our community and to give away and to, and to help others. You never know the lives you're going to touch. You never know the people you're going to have an impact on. You never know what they're thinking or what they're going through or how much something as simple as an Easter basket with a Bible inside of it will mean to someone in their life. So I want to thank you for being generous through your local church and and giving here. But I also want to thank you just for doing a lot of that on your own because I know that many of you do. And I just thought that was worth celebrating and taking some time out and saying, this is awesome to see one little story story. Of, of a way that we were able to make an impact in our community, uh, even here over the last couple weeks. All right, Esther chapter number three. If you would turn your way there, tap your way there, Esther chapter number three. i 'm going to take a moment i 'm going to pray over the sermon and just invite the Lord to meet with us and to be with us. Uh, so as you turn there, once you find your place, go ahead and let 's take a minute and pray with me. Father, we thank you just for the fact that you're you, that you're awesome, that you're God. And we want to celebrate that and let you know that we do praise you and worship you and uh, thank the world of you. Lord, we understand that our hearts oftentimes are so far from you and that we don't love you with all that we have all the time, but we sure do want to. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, bless certain aspects of this service today. Lord, as we stop and we study your word, we want you to meet with us and speak to us. And Lord, speak through your word. Lord, we we count it a privilege to be able to do this, but we understand how needy we are and that we need your divine aid. Lord, we also pray that you would bless uh, so many around us that we get to minister to. I pray specifically for Amira. I don't know all of her background or her story, but I pray that, uh, that she would sense your love and your presence and your spirit, that she would turn to you, want you, follow you. And Lord, I pray that you would use us as we seek to minister for your glory, and for people's good. We love you, and we thank you for the opportunity to be your people, to be salt and light. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, Esther 3. Let me catch you up if you haven't been with us thus far. We started three weeks ago a study of the book of Esther, literally verse by verse, word by word. And so far, what we've seen as far as the cliff note version of the story goes, is that this is written in the 5th century B.C., so this is about 2,500 years ago. The dominating kingdom of the world was the kingdom of Persia. This is ruled by a man named Xerxes. His father was Darius. His grandfather was Cyrus. Maybe you've read about them in history. But Xerxes really ruled the known world. He had the most power and the most money and the most authority that anyone could have at that point in time. He viewed himself as a god. He sat on a throne and made decrees. He ends up throwing this party a few years into his reign that's the party to end all parties. Six months, all-you-can-eat, all-you-can-drink, at least 10,000 people are there, just a massive amount of wealth and opulence, and he ends up at this all-you-can-drink party. Wouldn't you guess it? He gets drunk. And when he gets drunk, he makes some bad decisions, and those series of decisions domino into him divorcing his wife, the then-queen Vashti. A few years go by, Xerxes loses a war to Greece and comes back home and he's sad and he wants a new queen. So they come up with this idea to run the bachelor Persia and to actually get a bunch of women there and to have them try out and uh, it's actually a sex competition when it's all said and done and it's dirty and it's nasty, but he ends up marrying through this competition a young Jewish girl who's very beautiful by the name of Esther. Esther is told by her adopted father, Mordecai, to not let anyone know that she's Jewish, to go with the flow, to do what they say, to not take a stand, and so she does. Her adopted father, Mordecai, actually, a few months later, discovers a plot to eliminate and assassinate King Xerxes. He makes it known, and then we turn the page to chapter 3, which is five years after this uncovered assassination attempt. And five years later, there is a man being promoted, but it is not Mordecai, the one who saved the king's life. It is a man by the name of Haman. Haman is introduced to us as an Agagite, which we spent significant time on last week, because the Agagites were the ancient tribal enemies of the Jewish people. So you immediately have these characters on this Mordecai, the Jew, prime minister of Persia, And these two have bloodlines that go back generations. And these people have hated each other and wanted to exterminate each other for a long, long time. These are the Hatfields and the McCoys. So Haman is promoted. And now Mordecai won't pay him reverence or give him honor. He won't bow to him. And Haman is mad at this, not just because of disrespect, but he's mad at this because he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew And he makes plans to eliminate Mordecai and to eliminate all of the Jewish people, which at face value seems like this absurd overreaction that, like, you won't give me respect, so I'm going to eliminate all your people. But when you get the backdrop and the history and the story, it makes complete sense that this is an opportunity to do what my ancestors have been trying to do for many, many generations and to eliminate and go to war with the Jewish people. So we left the story last week with Haman actually enlisting the help of soothsayers and participating in divination to select a day that would be the day of destruction and the day of genocide where all the Jewish people would die. We're going to read about that here in just a moment and get caught back up. So read with me, if you would, in Esther chapter number 3, verse number 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he sought, or he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. So, this is an opportunity not just to kill Mordecai, this is an opportunity to, to get rid of all of them. So, verse 7 here's the divination. In the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is the lot, or you could say dice before haman from day to day from month to month to the 12th month that is the month of Dar. so what they do is they they cast these dice and the dice select let's get the help of the spirit world to help us choose the day we'll do genocide which actually happens we'll see the exact day in just a moment it's the 13th day of the 12th month so 11 months later is the day that's selected and roughly a year from now we are going to kill all these people at least haman wants to That's where we left it last week. Now Haman has to get the buy-in from the king because while he has authority and he is the head of government, he does not have the authority to just go eliminate a whole group of people that are going to pay taxes and those sorts of things. So he's going to need Xerxes' buy-in, and this is where we come in verse number 8. Haman said to king Ahasuerus, "'There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people "'in all the provinces of thy kingdom.'" And their laws are diverse from all people, neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. So here's what Haman does. He goes to the king, says, king, big problem, okay? And this problem is everywhere, There are these people, and their laws are different than all the other people, and they at times don't follow the king's laws. They're kind of like Vashti. They say no sometimes. They won't participate. They won't go with the flow. So it's not for your prophet to suffer them. King, this is not good for you. King, I'm looking out for your best interest. I am thinking of you. I am just trying to solve these problems for you. You know, it's a real problem, and I'm here to fix it. And if it please the king, let's destroy them. Let's get rid of them, and I will pay you 10,000 talents of silver if we do this business. So 10,000 talents of silver is billions in our, in our vernacular. King, this is not just a problem that we need to solve. This is a business opportunity, and we can turn a profit. If we destroy these people, they got money, they got savings, they got jewels, they got art, they have gold. Who's going to be left with this? Let's destroy them all. Let's not even leave it to their kids. Let's get rid of all of them. So who's going to take care of it? We'll take care of it. If we exterminate all of them, then this stuff is going to funnel its way into the king's treasury. You will be rich. I will be rich. We can really make some money off of this, and it's a massive business opportunity. And Haman is extremely conniving and perceptive in this moment. First of all, Haman presents the problem to the king as a vague group of people. If you read the text, you'll notice he never mentions the Jewish people by name. He never mentions, you know, their laws by name. He never says here's exactly the laws that they're going to break. He makes this very vague Non-specific, nondescript group of people which is always the way when people want to get your buy-in but they think they're gonna struggle to they oftentimes will present their problem or the solution to problems in really vague nondescriptive terms it's very common and it is a red flag if you have someone that comes to you and says hey uh, you know there there's some people and they feel that you're doing you know, I don't feel that way I mean we're, we're, we're great we're fantastic but there are some people I know that, that they feel a certain way, your first inclination should be, okay, who are these people? Tell me, be specific, don't be nondescript. Well, no, 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 they, they, I mean, I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to say, I don't want that to, that's a red flag that someone's about to play fast and loose with the truth. But they don't want to give you specifics, they don't want to allow you to investigate, they don't want to allow you to actually problem solve or, or own it and say, this is how I feel, this is, this is what I'm seeing. When it's very vague and nondescript, be aware because what Haman does is he plays fast and loose with the truth. He says there's a problem, they're not for your profit, which actually is untrue, because the king has a queen who's Jewish, and he found that to be profitable, he liked that. The king has Mordecai, who's a Jewish man, who just saved his life, who revealed this assassination attempt, and actually, he may not be alive if not for the Jewish people, so Haman is able to just kind of, this silhouette of what this is, let me, let me just kind of put a little bit of information out there and, and let, me, let me be a little bit loose with the truth because now you can't investigate and now let me throw a financial motivation on top of all that. King, we can, we can make a lot of money with them. So this is just a great simple life lesson for you when you approach your boss. When you approach someone else with a problem, own it. Don't be non-descriptive. Don't, don't outsource it to other people. This would also be a great life lesson for you if someone's coming to you. This is even me personally. Like if you ever write an anonymous note to me, it'll never get to me, which I know at times happens because sometimes people that count the offering or maybe someone in the office, hey, we got a letter. It's, it's anonymous. I tell them every time, throw it in the trash. I don't want to see it. If, if, if that person won't give me their name, won't allow me to ask them a question, won't allow me to investigate, won't allow me to get any more information, and it's just this nondescript, I'm a concerned citizen who wants to tell you this, I, I have no interest in it as a leader. It doesn't help me. You say, no, they, they could be giving you some feedback. I'm welcome. Like, I'll take feedback. I'll be wide open. I'll try to be non-defensive as possible. I'm not always great at that, but I'll try my best. But, but when it's anonymous, or there's no names, or it's vague, or it's just these people, that's a warning sign that you're not going to get reliable information. You're not actually going to be able to dig into it. And Haman is a master at this. He does this with the king. And you'd think at this point in time, if he is requesting the extermination of a group of people, well, that seems like a large request, that the king would investigate, that the king would ask questions Who are these people? What are these laws? In what ways are they contrary to us? What hostility are they stirring up? But Haman just gave the king 10 billion reasons to say yes. In a moment, which we know from history, that the king just lost a war that cost him a lot of money. The king is prone to waste his money on big parties. The king just started a bunch of construction projects that he wanted to get up and running. And his pockets are starting to feel a little bit light, probably for the first time in his reign as king. And so when Haman comes with a financial motivation, of we get 10,000 talents of silver out of these people. All of a sudden, the king is very, very prone to say yes, which in fact he does, verse 10. You find this lazy, greedy Xerxes. The king took his ring from his hand. He gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamathda, the Agagite, the Jew's enemy. So when he gives the signet ring, think power of attorney. He is giving him power of attorney to to do with what he wants. The king said unto Haman, the silver is given to thee, the people also. Do with them as it seemeth good to thee. So hey, sounds like you have a good plan. People, kill them, get the silver, put it in the treasury. Yep, run with it here's my signet ring go ahead now a couple things first of all this game is is it's not new like this game's been going on a long time this actually to me sounds a lot like our election process (laughs) every election cycle the party platforms without exception all of them are built on one misinformation and two financial motivations you say no it's way too reductionistic perhaps, but at its core, that's what they're built off of. A whole lot of spin and a whole lot of financial motivations. If you're rich, vote for me. I'll take away your taxes. You'll keep more money. If you're not rich, vote for me. I'll tax them and you'll get their money. Both are financially motivated. Both have a whole lot of misinformation. And, And we are asked every election cycle to take your signet ring and kind of sign off on whoever it is. And it's very wise for us to at least try to be an informed electorate, to at least ask some questions, to at least try to dig and and look at those things. But here's the truth. You get in real trouble when you start to make decisions that are dealing with numbers but not faces, which is where Xerxes is at. He's going to be very lazy in his thinking, very lazy in his investigation, and very greedy because he was just offered financial motivations and a whole lot of dollars and a whole lot of numbers to be able to say yes and he begins to think in my estimation about the numbers and not the faces which numbers play a factor in our decisions the the job that you take the education path that you choose the career path that you choose uh, what you're gonna spend what you're gonna be generous in all of those things play a factor in our decisions However, when they play the primary factor and they begin to drive the bus, that can be bad. That can lead you to a lot of poor choices. And Xerxes is the guy in this moment that's nothing like God. Like, God knows numbers. God cares about numbers. He does. But God cares about faces. And God knows people. And God knows their stories. And God knows the number of hairs on their head. But Xerxes is a man who is willing to to reduce the number of people to increase the number of dollars. Now, you're probably thinking, well, pfft, I mean, I'm never going to, you know, commit murder for money. Like, I'm not going to be a hitman. Like that's that's a little far-fetched. I'm not going to reduce the number of people for the number of dollars. But we do this in subtle ways all the time where we, and I'm guilty too, where we start to make decisions that are driven primarily by financial motivations. Churches get themselves in trouble with this. Christians get themselves in trouble with this. That it's it's just all of, it's all about the bottom line, and it can't all be about the bottom line. There are times when you may need to make a decision that it negatively affects the bottom line. It has adverse effects on your finances, but it's to the glory of God or it's to the benefit of people. There are times when you are generous. And you give and you deplete the reserves because it is for God and it is for others and it's not about you and your greed and your selfishness and if you don't understand that and it's always about the bottom line it is it'll never go well for you this is why even as a church just as a matter of pragmatism we keep about three months savings in our bank account as a reserve fund which for us is a little more than three hundred thousand dollars about three hundred fifty thousand dollars we keep that there so that when you rewind the tape a year ago and this coronavirus thing happens and like it seems like the whole world is coming unhinged and you don't know what's going to happen, you don't, you don't know what the, what the generosity is going to be, you don't know what the economy is going to be, you have no idea what's going to happen, we keep that there for those days so that we don't find ourselves in a position where we are making knee-jerk reactions and knee-jerk decisions that are just based off of we're in a financial crunch, the end. It, it was extremely helpful for us a year ago to have the space and the margin to be able to step back and say, okay, we, we want to understand the long game. We want to try to anticipate. We want to try to be wise. But we don't have to all of a sudden change a bunch of stuff or get panicky or, or make these knee-jerk reactions based off of this moment because the finances get a little tighter. We can actually pause. We were able to as a church engage more with our community and actually give more money away than we would have if not for COVID for that reason. So there's a lot of very basic, basic implications from this text on how you budget, on if you have margin in your life with your budget, on if you have a savings account or not, on on what your driving motivations are for your decisions. Because this man is a man who, just frankly, he's lazy and he's greedy when he makes this decision to kill people. To exterminate an, an entire race of people. So understand that leaders, if you're a leader at all, in your family, in your community, politically, in your business, whatever it is, that when when you make decisions, not only do they not need to be primarily financially motivated, but they also need to be investigated. You don't need to be lazy in your thinking. You need to actually stop, ask the tough questions, dig a little deeper because leaders are called not just to make decisions but to actually make the right decisions with the right information right so this is why i ask you guys very often i admit i i probably don't do it as much as i did in the first year or two although I, i should do it more often i oftentimes my biggest request from you all to me how can we pray for you pastor wisdom Pray for wisdom, because I don't just want to make decisions. Our pastoral team, we don't just want to make decisions. Even our deacons who serve as some accountability and some perspective to give us some well-rounded, thought-through decision-making power. We want to try to make the best decisions we can with the right information, that, that we, the best information we can, not just go make decisions. Because you can get yourself in trouble that way. So I would ask, honestly, like this is convicting for me <laughs> as a leader, Pray for me. Pray for your church. Pray for your elected officials, local, state, national. Pray for President Biden and anyone all the way on down. I don't care if you voted for him and you love him or you didn't vote for him and, and you hate him, although we shouldn't hate, I get that, but, but you know, you're know you not the biggest fan. No, but, no matter who you voted for or what you think about who should be in office or who shouldn't, or what. no matter who you voted for, I think we can all agree we want our leaders to make the best wisest decisions they possibly can with as much information as they possibly can and not just make lazy greedy decisions can we all agree on that i think everybody can agree on that so we pray for that we, we ask the lord to bless we ask him to intervene we ask for the right information to, to flow for the right reports to come out we want that to happen so that right decisions can be made so here's what happens it's presented in this vague nondescript Fast and loose with the truth, financially motivated way, Xerxes buys in. He says, Yes, here's my signet ring, power of attorney, go right ahead. And verse number 12, the genocide becomes officially legal. Verse 12. Then were the king's scribes called on the 13th day of the first month, and there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants, to the governors that were over every province, to the rulers of every people of the province, according to the writing thereof. So they're making sure that the powers that be, first and foremost, understand what's written, why it's written, what we're doing. It's crystal clear. If we're gonna, on this day, we're going to exterminate the Jews. And as a leader, stand back, let it go. This is the king's directive. We don't need someone getting on a power trip and playing hero and making sure that they go save people. We're going to make it crystal clear to all the leaders, lieutenants, the governors, that, that they're there. And to every people after their language, in the name of King Ahasuerus was it written, and it was sealed with the king's ring. So, this is official. This is done, it's law. The letters were sent by posts into all the king's provinces. The Persians actually invented the postal system that we would know today. Our, our postal system model, actually, we stole from the Persians. And uh, so, they actually were very uh, ingenuitive with all of this. But they send them by the post to make sure everybody gets it. Verse number 13 here's the, here's the command destroy, kill and cause to perish all Jews so in case destroy wasn't clear, destroy and kill and in case destroy and kill wasn't clear, destroy, kill and cause to perish let's just make this abundantly clear this was not a typo this, this was not a whoops't we didn't, we didn't mean that no this is what it is all the Jews and in case all Jews isn't clear, both young and old, little children, women. In one day, here's the day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, to make the spoil of them, we mentioned that to get their money, to make the spoil of them for a prey, the copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto, not just the leaders, unto all people that they should be ready against that day. So this is heavy language. Annihilate them all. All of them. The, the, the little chubby toddler who's just trying to learn to walk right now. The the little kids. The little boys playing in, in the pool. The little girl with pigtails. The, the women, the older women. The, the grandma who can't get up and run from you. The grandpa who's hearing so bad that when you kick in his door, he's not even going to know you're in his house. All of them. Kill, destroy, get the commands to the people. It's interesting. This isn't, hey, the the military powers are going to go door to door and they're going to find you. This is let's have a purge. Let's just put it out in advance to all the people and let them know on this day, have a purge, go to town. And it's based on the assumption that people are on a leash and if we let them off the leash, then they'll just do the job for us. We can just decree, here's the day, go nuts, help yourself, kill them and take their stuff and we will have buy-in and this will happen. We can go all the way to Ethiopia or to India or right here at Shushan the palace. We can just put the word out and people are opportunistic, even if it means killing them, murdering them. It'll just, it'll just happen. 11 months from now, that's the day. Let everybody know so they don't hide it. This isn't like, shh, don't tell. But on this day, we're going to surprise them. No, just let them know. FYI, you got 11 months, right? Tim McGraw live like you're dying or something. Like you just gotta, you know, you you got you got a clock now. Like just, you know, it's it's over. You're terminal. And here's what happens, in verse 15. You say that's that's like dark. Like that's that's heavy. That's crazy. I know. Verse 15. It's it's a bit darker. The post went out, being hastened by the king's commandment, and the decree was given in Shushan the palace. And then listen to this. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city Shushan was perplexed. So you have this picture of the king and Haman, like, what should we do today? Mm, genocide? It'd probably be billions. Yeah, good idea. Make that decree. Want a drink? Yeah. All a day's work, right? You get this picture, like, it's just another day at the office. Like, we're just going to decree genocide, and then we'll just sit down, have a drink, and, you know, we're not going to go home, have a guilt trip, have nightmares about this. Just, you're just going with the flow here. This is just what we do, right? But the city of Shushan was perplexed so the people naturally so are bewildered at how is such hatred being unleashed on us how how is this possible that we're just like putting it out there and making it law that we're just going to commit genocide that the people are it seems a little bit out of character perhaps for Xerxes that they are bewildered and perplexed that this has just been decreed. Not just the Jewish people. The Jewish people naturally are perplexed and bewildered, but all the people are like, what is happening? Like, what have we done? Are we off our rocker? What just became law? That this is going to happen on this day? Now, can you imagine living in this empire? Can you imagine being one of the people who are subject to these decrees and to these laws who live in this system? And I want to take the remainder of my time this morning and try to convince you that we do live in this empire. That this is not just a 2,500 years ago, what a tale of a story. This is is still us. If we are rightfully horrified that a Persian government 25 years ago, 2,500 years ago, could send forth a decree to declare the execution of innocent people. I hope, and I'm just going to be bold, I hope that we understand that we do not have the moral high ground in a 21st century America that has put into law that we can exterminate the innocent people, namely the unborn. Like that's, that's, not, that's not like apples and oranges here. And some of you are thinking, oh no, time you way too big elite pastor. That is apples and oranges, okay? To, to to, you know, genocide versus killing a 12-week-old fetus. Like we don't even know if that's a person. First of all, I would argue that scientifically and biblically, there is a whole lot more data that supports that that, that, that is a person in the womb than not. But let let me play your game, okay? Let me play your game. Let's just pretend like we don't know that it's a person. Let's pretend that we can't say definitively that it is. We certainly can't say definitively that it's not, and we just don't know. How broke is that logic? Like, can you find me any situation in in reality, in life, where we say, we're not sure if that's a life or not, or if we would be committing murder or not, so, go for it. Like, if you and your buddy are in the blind hunting, and, and there's this, you know, bush, and you see something kind of behind the bush. I'm, I'm not sure if that's, a, if, that's a, if that's a deer or if that's a person. You can tell I don't hunt, right? Like, I'm not sure who that is. I, I, it could be a hunter. It could be a person. Anybody saying pull the trigger. Any, I don't know anyone. I don't care if they're Republican, Democrat, old, young. I don't know anyone that's like squeeze that trigger and just, just let the round off. Why? Because that could be a human life that you are about to take. May not be. It could be a deer. You could have, you know, meat in your freezer all winter long. But it could be a person. So don't you dare pull the trigger. But when it comes to a 12-week-old fetus, we're not sure it's a human life. Pull the trigger. That's what we do. That's what we say. Pull the trigger. How crazy is that, right? We have to look at this text and not say, okay, let's approach Esther with this. You know, oh, we're good, moral, great people. I can't believe that they would. Oh, my word, we're up here on our pedestal. No, 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 let's approach this text with humility and understand that if Shushan was perplexed, I would argue that Shushan should be perplexed at what we do in our country. That it shouldn't just become like old hat, you know, it's, it's what we do. I haven't thought about it. I haven't prayed for about it. It doesn't bother me at all. You would say the Persian should be bothered by the legalization of genocide, and I would argue that we should be bothered by the legalization of killing unborn innocent children. That should bother us. That that should be a problem for us to understand that this, in fact, is us. The life is way too sacred to just roll the dice on it and, and, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, let's see, we don't know. No, 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 life doesn't work that way. And we have to be people who are bold enough to stand, to say that this is not OK, to actually produce some logic, but produce the scriptures as well and say that this is, this is a problem. Now, I do want to be clear, I do want to be pastoral for a moment, because anytime I touch on the subject of abortion, there inevitably, there aren't just people who disagree with me, which that's fine, we, we can argue about that strongly. But there are people who, they don't argue and and they do agree, but there's a a tremendous amount of guilt or shame because this is part of your story. So I want to be very pastoral and I want to be very careful that an abortion is not an unforgivable sin. This is not something that Hey, you're in this category on your own and God's grace isn't big enough for you or he can't forgive you for that. Let's be very clear to thread that needle and make sure that I'm not heaping guilt or shame on you when the Lord doesn't uh, want it to be on you. I I don't want to soft pedal it and I don't want to act like it's a nothing burger. But I also want to be very clear that the scriptures teach that if we confess our sin, that he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to take that away and to forgive us for any sin, including abortion, and to actually give to us his life, to give us a clean conscience, to free us from that guilt. So I've, I don't want to heap that on you because I understand for some of you, this, this is, in a room this size, for a decent portion of you, this is part of the equation. Either they had an abortion or maybe I encouraged someone else to have an abortion. Maybe I didn't encourage them, but my friend came to me, and it was weighing on them, and I should have spoken in and encouraged them not to, but I I didn't, and I just bit my tongue, or I'm part of the medical community. This is very, very common for Christians in the medical community to zip their lip and to shut their mouth because they don't want to make waves at the hospital or with the doctors and to not take a stand on this and just go with the flow. Or, or maybe you're you're a man who you encouraged your girlfriend or your fiancé or your spouse to, to take place in this. So there's, there's a lot of ways that this can affect many in this room. And the point is that God's grace is awesome. And it's strong and it's powerful and overcomes even this. Okay, so let's be clear on that. But let's also be clear that it's not okay. Let's also be clear that the motivations that Xerxes has for genocide... Is the same motivations that we have today because what you find is that the discussion on abortion is not based on science and it is not based on logic it is based on laziness and greed It's the same motivations and I know that this is blunt but it's the truth it's the same motivations of well if I have a kid what does that mean for my life I don't know that I was ready for a kid I don't know that I can financially support a kid I don't know that I can financially support another kid. Well, they're telling me that there's some markers in the genetic code and that, you know, this isn't what I had in my mind. They're telling me that, that perhaps my kid is going to be, you know, born with, with Down syndrome or something else. I don't know that I want that workload. I don't know that I want to handle that. That's, I mean, that's, that's a whole different life scenario that, that's going to really alter my life. So let's, out of financial convenience and out of lazy thinking and not wanting the work that comes with the child, we're going to choose to End it. It's, a, it's the same motivations. It's the same motivations for the men who encourage their partners to go get an abortion. Why? Because they don't want to be a dad. Because they don't want to step up to the plate. They don't want to be in fatherhood now or that young. What is it? It's greed and it's lazy. It's what fuels our version of Esther 3. Same motivations. There's a there's, there's little idiosyncrasies between Esther 3 and us, but not much. It's about the same. I think perhaps the most straightforward application of this would not just be genocide or killing innocent people, although that's there. But I think perhaps the most straightforward application of Esther chapter number 3 is that there is hostility. From the world towards the people of God. This is a whole different application, but it, nevertheless, it's sitting right there in front of us. This is when it's all said and done Haman the aggregate, the world system, and the government deciding to be hostile towards the people of God, the Jewish people, and to want to work to their destruction towards their end. And that is not new. That is something that has been going on and will continue to go on for a long time. This is leveraging the state to actually work actively against the people of God. They did it in Esther's day. They did it in Jesus' day. Okay? Jesus wasn't put on a cross by anarchists. Jesus was put on the cross by the state because the religious leaders were smart enough to manipulate the system and pull the strings and get the state to do its bidding and actually put Jesus on the cross. Paul persecuted the Christians, not as a vigilante, but he persecuted the Christians with the sanctioning of religious and state government. Paul himself was put to death by the Roman government. So this wasn't Esther. This was in Jesus' day. This was in the first century. This will be in the future. I don't know if you ever read Revelation 13, that whole beast, antichrist, false prophet thing, but it's very clear that the state is leveraged to exterminate the people of God in the future, and this still exists today. It's not just the past, it's not just the future, but even today. Now, I understand that we're, we're not the persecuted church like some of the world is today, but there is still today a very, very persecuted church. One of our missionaries in China, Mark Tolson, he was just here about, about two years ago, uh, got raided recently by the, by the police, uh, people thrown in prison, trying to shut the, the, uh, the church down, the state government trying to squash and get rid of the church. So this still happens today. And there are inklings of this even now in our culture. I, I bring this up not just to say pray for the persecuted churches today, although that is valid. I bring this up not just to say, well, if you read prophecy, it tells us this is going to happen in the future. I bring this up because I fear for American Christianity that does not come to terms with the reality that this will be around the corner for us. Now, I'm not a prophet. I'm not promising that. I'm not guaranteeing that, but it is very likely. It is very likely that the temperature in the room continues to be turned up for Christians and that it becomes increasingly uncomfortable and hostile for you or for your children or your grandchildren to actually take a stand for God and say, I actually do, I follow him, I believe him, and I'm going to do what he says. I'm going I'm to say when something's wrong, it's wrong. I'm going I'm to follow the word of God. That's going to become increasingly difficult. Haman's hostility towards the people of God was just the 5th century manifestation of Satan's ongoing warfare against the people of God. And it's different. It's not Haman, but it's the the same song and dance. If If you can't pop your eyes up and see that this is not something that's across the pond, but actually is in our backyard and facing us today, then I don't know what to say. Because this is becoming us and I'm, I do want to be clear. Okay, I try as much as I can to thread the needle right. I am thankful that I am an American. I am thankful that I was that I'm a citizen of this country. I am thankful for the religious freedoms that we historically have had and still are intact today. I am very grateful for that. I am grateful that those religious freedoms have, at times, leashed and restrained people from being completely hostile or completely over in their persecution. Of not just Christians, but all religious groups, but I am not extremely hopeful that that will continue long term. And that's not just because I'm doomsday. If you know me, you know I'm not a doomsday guy. I, I, I like to be clear, sometimes even blunt, but I'm a pretty optimistic guy. I don't normally see the glass half full. I say that because Jesus said that. Go read John 15, go read John 16. There's a whole lot of press from the lips of Jesus himself that say, if you follow me, it is going to put you at odds with the world around you. And they're not going to just, you know, agree to disagree at times. That is going to turn extremely hostile and even persecution. Jesus says in John 16, in the first three verses, that though, there's going to come a day that those that kill you will think that they are doing God a favor and a service, but they do not know me and they do not know the Father. There's going to come a day, and it has been there all through the church. It's always been. We don't have to mess with most of this as Christians. What we get is the little stuff. And, it, I mean, it, it throws us into a tailspin. We get the, you know, they jeered and sneered at me because I said I was a Christian. They, you know, they kind of ostracized me, and they won't let me in the in-group at work. Uh, The people at school just call me a Bible thumper and I'm not one of the cool kids. We get that. And I'm not trying to belittle that or being ostracized, but that compared to what the church has historically been through, we have such a light dose of this. And this is likely going to be something that changes increasingly. And do not be surprised if the state is leveraged to help in this. Because that, that dance has been around a long time. A long time. Satan knows what he's doing when he, when he knows where the power is, where he knows where the strings are, and he knows how to get at the people of God. And we have to understand, just very simply, that the world's hatred for God oftentimes manifests itself in hostility towards the people of God. And we don't need to be scared of this. We don't need to run from this. We don't need to batten down the hatches and just you know go into retreat mode on this. The scriptures actually call us to stand up and not be afraid of it. To testify anyway. To to take a stand and say, no, abortion isn't like just a thing that you can legalize. It's still wrong. It's still murder. The scriptures actually encourage us to be willing to suffer for it, to take the pay cut at work, even if it means I'm doing what's righteous. To take the hostility from people, even if it means that that I step up to the plate. And what I find is that most American Christians, and I'm going to put myself in this boat because I'm not excluded from this, most American Christians find themselves think, thinking, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that if the time comes or how could I do that? How, how could I endure that or suffer through that? And I think the answer is very simple. Christians know somebody that loved deeply and stood for truth But got nailed for it don't we that somebody by the name of Jesus actually not only when he was nailed he was forsaken and forgotten and left all by his lonesome to stand and Jesus told his followers literally the day before he went to the cross that if they do this to me they are going to do this to you only difference is when you stand in love and you get nailed for it and you will I won't leave you. I'll stay with you. My spirit of glory will go with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And more or less, Jesus says what the Old Testament scriptures teach that the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it and are saved. And that doesn't mean that you're saved necessarily from the hostility or from the pain or from the outright persecution. But it does mean that God is more than enough to get you through that and that you trust in him and you take the pedigree of Hebrews 11 and the people that stood, even though it cost them everything, and that you stand as well. So may we be people that actually, with love and grace and the right attitude, not as weirdos, I'm not advocating that you be a psychopath, okay? Hear me on that. If, if you get hostility because you're dumb, that's on you. Okay? If you're running around and you're just trying to beat people up angrily, and I've got a question for you How are you going to spend eternity, original or extra crispy? You know, if that's you, you deserve to be slapped. Okay? I've, I may slap you. So, don't be stupid and and don't be obnoxious. Okay, there's been a lot. How many have known a few obnoxious Christians in your life? Okay, let's not be obnoxious. Let's understand the Bible teaches that we have love and we have grace and we have the right attitude, but that love and grace is not to the exclusion of truth and that we stand no matter the cost, even if the state is leveraged against us, even if people are hostile towards us, because we understand that our Savior got nailed, and sometimes we're going to get nailed too, but he's with us, and we trust in him through it all. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the truths of Esther 3. Lord, I'm so grateful for this book and how it just drips with application Lord, I pray for us as your people. I ask that we would not be people who are guided by misinformation or by greed, that we would not be people who have financial motivations as our primary motivation. Lord, I pray that we would be generous that we would actually unleash our finances for the benefit of others around us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us not to be lazy. I pray that you would help us as your people to take a stand with love and grace